Thank you for joining us for this podcast of the Family Fellowship of Greenville, located in Greenville, Texas. If you'd like more information about our church, please log on to www.familyfellowship.us or email us at info at familyfellowship.us. Now here's lead pastor, Paul Blue. Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, give you a little heads up. Uh, we're also going to be in 2 Peter 3 and Acts chapter 2. Those are the three places that I'm going to ask you to turn this morning. Um, but, uh, man, have things really changed when it comes to automobiles, specifically how our children ride in the car. Um, you know, nowadays, kids can be in the, you know, up to sixth, maybe even seventh grade, and still be in a car seat because the way they've changed the, you know, the rules by by weight and things like that. And and uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that a car seat was optional, and maybe for good reason. Some of you think that car seats have only been around since the 80s, and that's not true at all. Car seats have been around since at least the 50s. Check out this picture of that car seat. That looks like it could cause some damage. You wouldn't want your kid to be in that if, if you were in an accident. Um, that's dangerous. When we were little, uh, when, I, when I was little, uh, I remember us going on, on trips in my dad's early 70s model Buick Electra 225. Now, for you youngsters, you Google that, and what you're going to see is a yacht. It's like a land yacht, you know, and it's a great big car. And, and uh, so when we would be on a long trip, our parents, you know, would after a while say, okay, you guys just need to lay down. And so my sister, I had an older sister. She was the oldest of the three, then my brother, and then I was the youngest. And so because she was the oldest, she was the girl, she got the seat. So she laid in the seat. My brother laid in the floorboard, and I laid in the back window dash. You know, kind of like this kid. See that kid asleep back there? That's how... Now, you talk about dangerous... Uh, so, you know, we don't get to do stuff like that anymore. And, and you know, of course, I have a lot of funny memories about stuff like that. You know, the, the times that, you know, Dad would hit the brakes. And so I would go rolling down onto my sister, you know, and then after that onto my brother, and then he would get mad, and then we would fight. And, and then, you know, whenever we would uh, get in situations like that, you know, I've also noticed that in-the-car discipline has changed as well uh, over the years. So if, if kids now are in the car and they're fighting with each other, you know, they're going to hear, you know, the three dreaded words from their one of their parents. Now, the three dreaded words have different variations today, but, you know, one of them is no more iPad. So if the kids are acting up in the car, it's no more iPad or maybe no more DVD. Some vehicles, you know, they've got Xbox, so no more Xbox when the kids are acting up. Whenever we were in, in the car and we started acting up, we heard three dreaded words as well, but it wasn't no more iPad. My dad would tell us, lean up here. <laughs> I look back on those days and I laugh when I think of that because, you know, my brother and I, my sister was never a, a, a troublemaker, at least that I remember. She was six or seven years older than me. Um, now, my brother was a troublemaker and he would always drag me along with him and and uh, so we would be getting rowdy or whatever, and we would finally get aggravated. And, you know, my dad was a typical dad in those days. We're not stopping. 
We don't stop to eat. We don't stop to go to the restroom. And we sure don't stop for him to discipline us. And so he would tell us, lean up here. And so he's driving and, you know, and he's deucing a quarter down the highway, 85 miles an hour, just floating. Boom. And he would tell us, lean up here while he's driving. And he's trying to <laughs> pop us on the head, which, you know, again, for me, I would much rather have my dad be trying to discipline me while he's driving to stop the car, right? So, uh, anyway, those three dreaded words, lean up here. In Revelation chapter 4, God speaks three very similar words. But but these words that God speaks aren't words to be dreaded. And I didn't ask you to turn to Revelation 4, so you stay in First Thessalonians. Um, God spoke these words to John to reveal what was going to happen in regards to the end times. But they also happen to be the words that God will speak to his church at the rapture. The three words that God speaks aren't lean up here. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, those words are come up here. That's what he, he said to John. And, and those words right there in, in Revelation 4.1 serve as the pivot point for the book of Revelation in describing the events of Christ's return and then the seven-year tribulation period that follows. I, I just probably need to stop right now and say, are you alert and ready this morning? Because this morning is, is going to be, it's a, it's a teaching series, and you're going to want to make sure that you absorb Everything that I'm going to share with you this morning. Um, but this isn't the easiest Sunday of all of them. Okay, so so I really need you to be engaged and, and, and take some notes, things that may, if you got a question, boy, write that question down because it'll, it'll get answered in this series. Last week we looked at an outline of the book of Revelation where Jesus spoke to John and told John, I want you to write down three things. I want you to write down what you have seen. I want you to write down what is, what's happening now, and then I want you to write down what is going to happen later. And so in, in uh, chapter 1, John wrote what he had seen, which was a vision uh, of the victorious Christ. In chapters 2 and 3, he wrote what was happening now, and he was writing about the seven churches of Revelation. Those seven churches were real churches at the time of John, but they also speak prophetically about the church age, uh, uh, so of all churches. Um, one of the things that helps to understand as we go through and we talk about things such as the church age. Now, these aren't, I'm not giving you de- definitive lines. I'm just going to give you some generalities this morning to kind of help you understand. But in the Old Testament, that is God dealing with Israel. Okay? Then when we go to the New Testament, you remember Jesus came as, as Israel's Messiah and they rejected him and they sent him to the cross. And so as a result, God put a a temporary halt on his dealing with Israel, and God began dealing with a new group, those who would follow Christ, those who would believe in Jesus, and that's called the church. And so we have God dealing with Israel in the Old Testament generally, God dealing with the church generally in the New Testament. And so what we are in right now is called the church age. It's the age of the church. And so what what... What John wrote about it in, in, in regards to the, the seven churches in Revelation, there are things in those churches that talk about the church age. And then John wrote in chapters 4 through 22 about what will happen later. Later than what? Later than the church age. 
So, so the latter part of the book of Revelation is written about the things that are going to happen after the church no longer exists. Why does it no longer exist? Because Christ has come for his church at the what we call the rapture of the church. And following that is the seven-year tribulation period. And following that, in Revelation chapter 20 and 21, is the time period known as the thousand-year reign of Christ. So, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I want you to look. We're going to begin in verse 16. This is talking about Christ's return. And the Bible says this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. And then he goes on to say, so encourage one another with these words. So there's coming a day when Jesus is going to return for his bride, the church. The big question that we all want to know is, is when? When is that going to happen? Well, nobody knows exactly. But God has given us some signs, some hints, if you will, about Christ's coming. And it helps to understand God's calendar. You see, one of the things that we like to do is we like we want God to work on our calendar and on our time. But but we've got to understand God's calendar. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. Um, again, you don't need to turn here, but in Matthew chapter 16, the religious elite of Jesus' day, they were accusing Jesus of being a fake. And so they were telling Jesus, we want you to give us a sign to prove that you really are who you say that you are. And look at what he told them in in the latter part of verse 3, Matthew chapter 16, he says, you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Now, I'm just giving you a piece of that because I don't want to dwell on a lot of that this morning, but what he told them in the surrounding verses, he said, you're, you're, you're evil. And because you're evil, you don't have the ability to discern the signs of the times. But there's something in Jesus' words there that we can infer. First is this. There are signs of the times. And second thing that we can infer is they are discernible, but not by the wicked. So then, who can discern them? Well, the answer is they are discernible by followers of Jesus Christ who will get into the Word of God and study it. So there's one thing that every Christ follower can agree uh, on, and that is that God is a God of order. And so... So I'm going to direct your attention to your notes this morning. And the first thing that I want you to see is that in everything that God does, he has a plan. In everything, everything, every detail, every detail of every word, God has a plan. He knows what he's doing, and he's doing it all for a purpose. Nothing God does is random or by chance. God doesn't do things willy-nilly. In creation, if we go back there, God had a plan. Now, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 1, you, you, you can remember kind of how that went. He had a plan, and he said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work for six days. And so, uh, so if you'll notice this chart here, there were, there were six days in the history of creation. And so God created things in those first six days. He created uh, the firmament, and he created the sea and dry land, and the, and the fish and the sea, and, and the animals, and all the plants and vegetation. And then on the sixth day, he created man. And then it tells us that after six days, he stopped creating, he stopped working. And what did he do after the sixth day? He did what? He rested. 
Genesis 2.2 says, On the seventh day God rested from all his work. The question that we have to ponder this morning is this. Why did God rest? Was God tired? I mean, did God go, man, this creation stuff is exhausting. Uh, this is just wearing me out. I've got six full days here of speaking things into existence. I'm going to have to sit down on my recliner with some sweet tea because I'm just worn out. Is that why God rested? No. God rested because it was part of his plan. But it wasn't just part of his plan of creation. It was part of God's plan to reveal to us, to give us a hint about God's calendar, specifically in regards to the end times. So in everything God does, he he does it because he has a plan. Secondly, in the same way that God had a plan for the beginning of the earth, he has a plan for the ending of it as well. That's what we're trying to get to is is the the ending of all things and and when is Christ coming and, and all of that stuff as we study Revelation. You see, God knew that mankind would fall away due to sin and ultimately it would even corrupt the earth. So God had a plan to destroy this corrupted earth and then rebuild a new one. And part of the plan within that was a plan of God to redeem man back to himself. So just as there was a seven-day plan for the creation of man, there is a second seven-day plan for the redemption of man. And within that seven-day plan of redemption was a specific time for Jesus to come. See, here's what I want you to see. Nothing was random. Even the time of Jesus coming wasn't random. God sent him at the time that he needed to come according to God's plan and according to God's calendar. Galatians 4.4 4 says this, When the right time came, God sent his son. What was the right time? Was the right time when, when Judas Iscariot lived? You know what? That was just all, that's, that's part of the side story. The right time for Jesus to come was the time that he had to come in God's calendar. And I'm going to give you some more details on it later. He came at the time that God sent him to come because it was God's plan. So, so is this plan of God's? Is this something that we can know about? And the answer is yes. I believe that God has given us a clue that spiritually-minded followers of Jesus can read and discern. I I actually posted on social media yesterday, it's kind of like the movie National Treasure, where it all started with this clue, The Secret Lies with Charlotte. And and that clue then, then opened up something else and opened up something else and opened up something else. And what we're doing this morning is we're opening up, really, the first and most important clue that starts us on this journey. And so thirdly, the the clue that God has given to help us understand when Christ will return is found actually in two phrases. The first phrase is the last days. The last days. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to give you time to get there because I want you to be able to see this. 2 Peter chapter 3. Yes, there are clues in the Scripture that God 
allows us to to spiritually discern if we are willing to put in the work and study His Word. They allow us to know uh, in some in some general ways, general time frames of when He is coming. And the first clue is in the phrase, the last day. Second Peter chapter 3, look at verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. This is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Most importantly... I want to remind you that in the last days, that's what we're talking about, in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Now, hold your place here, but go to Acts chapter 2 because we're going to go there next. So here we have this this first phrase, in the last days. What did Peter mean by that? Well, this last days reference was also spoken by Peter in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost is the day that began the church age. The day of Pentecost was the day that God began to deal with those who would commit their lives to Jesus Christ. So on that day of Pentecost, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit came on the believers and gave them the ability to speak in languages that they did not know in order to be able to preach Jesus. Now, when that happened, if you can imagine, if you can put yourself in that crowd uh, where all of a sudden now all these people that like, for example, us, we all speak English, but all of a sudden now, you know, you can speak Portuguese and you can speak French and you can speak Spanish and, you know, some you know, all that. And like we're like, okay, so that's kind of weird. And that's exactly the way the crowd felt that day. What is going on? And some of them said, they're all drunk. They've all been drinking and they're just, they're, they're making up all this stuff. And so Peter is explaining to the crowd in Acts chapter 2 exactly what's happening. Look at verse 14. Then Peter stepped forward with the eleven other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes the prophet Joel. And here's what he says, verse 17. In... The last days. There's that phrase again. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. And the Holy Spirit had just been poured out on the people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even in those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. So Peter is is quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel. And he's telling the people that what what Joel predicted, what Joel prophesied is coming true here today. What Peter is teaching us as we study this this morning is that the last days, here's here's the key, key to this part of the hint here, the last days began on the day of Pentecost almost 2,000 years ago. So, 
some of you, 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 you may have grown up and you've heard preachers saying, you know, I believe we're living in the last days, and they've been saying that for a 100 years or so, and you're like, okay, well, they've lost their minds. No, they haven't lost their minds. They know the Scriptures. We are living in what the Bible calls the last days. They began on the day of Pentecost, shortly after Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The second part of the clue is found in the phrase, the day of the Lord. So the first is the last days. The second phrase is the day of the Lord. So what we just read about is the, the, the prophecy of Joel talking about the last days where God's going to pour his spirit out on people. We stopped reading in verse 18. Let's pick up in verse 19. He goes on to say, and... Let me say this, if you're, if, you're, if you're a note writer in your Bible, you might want to write this at and in the last days, because we're continuing in the last days here, and I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. The first phrase, last days, that began 2,000 years ago. But what, has, what was described here in this second phrase, the day of the Lord, still has not happened. But it will happen in the time known as the tribulation. And we read about that in the book of Revelation, which we will do in coming weeks, but not today. But what, what we need to notice is that what Joel says. He says that, that all of this, that this last part, the, the day of the Lord, is a part of the last days. And, and there's a key that unlocks the mystery of when Christ will return for the rapture of the church, a sign that helps us understand what Peter was talking about when he talked about the last days as well as the day of the Lord. So go back to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, we read about the last days in verse 3. He, he said, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come. And so he's talking also about the last days. But then he goes on and he shares us uh, with us a really important piece of information in verse 8. He says this, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. In the context of Peter speaking about the last days, and he's about to talk about the day of the Lord, he, he drops in there for us a clue. He says, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So I want you to look at this, this chart here. It, it's very, very similar to the, the, the hist, history of creation. But this is the history of redemption. You see, there's, there's seven days here, just like there was in creation. And, and if you notice, in, in God's calendar of redemption, God works for six days, and he rested on the seventh day. I, I, I showed you, or I, I shared with you, that, that God didn't rest on the seventh day of creation because he was tired. He did so so that we would understand this calendar. 
And a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. And each one of, of God's prophetic days in his seven-day calendar, his seven-day prophetic calendar is a thousand years. And so what that means is, is from the time of Adam and creation to the cross is 4,000 years. That's four days. And from the time of Jesus until the end of the church age is two more days, six days, and then there's a seventh day, the last day, which is actually the day of the Lord, which is part of the, the last days, God rests. And that seventh day is what we call the thousand-year reign of Christ. Again, we, we're going to spend more time on that in future weeks. I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm laying building blocks here that we can build, put the Legos on each week, okay? When you talk about this, this biblical calendar, this is problematic for, for some people. It's very problematic for atheists, and it's, and it's a little problematic for a lot of Christians as well, isn't it? Because science tells us that we've lost our minds if we think that the earth is only 6,000 years old. Can I just be frank? I don't really care how old the earth is. I, I don't. It can be billions of years old as far as I'm concerned, but can I tell you what I know? And I'm not, I'm not disparaging science. I'm not a scientist, and so I would never disparage a scientist's work. So they, they have dating things, and that's, that's all well and good. But, but science, when it comes to all the, the, the age of the earth, they are guessing based on scientific methods that may or may not be adequate. It's a, it's a guess. It's a hypothesis, if you will, that they hope that they can maybe prove out. But there's something more reliable than science. And you're, you're, you're thinking, okay, he's going to say the Bible. Well, that, that is true, but that's not what I'm going to say at all. There's something when it comes to this that's more reliable than science. You know what it is? Written genealogy. And we have the written genealogy from Adam to Jesus. And you know what? We know when Jesus was here. As a matter of fact, our calendar is built around that. Jesus came at the, what we you know, in the general time of zero, right? So there's B.C. to the left and A.D. to the right. So there are 4,000 years because we can see that from, from genealogy, from Adam to Jesus, 4,000 years. The day is as a... A thousand years, a thousand years as a day. So 4,000 years is four prophetic days. And God was working in that in those four days. But God's also been working in, in the two days since then, from the time of Jesus to now. To, again, rough. I mean, these aren't hard and fast numbers. They're just so, so we can understand where we are. And God has, is, has been at work now. In the lives of mankind for 6,000 years or six prophetic days. And these last two days are, are the church age and the last three days are what's called the last days. And the seventh day is the last day or the day of the Lord. That's a lot of information. Let me just, let me just say this. When it came to creation... God worked six days and rested on the seventh. 
He didn't do it because he was tired. He did it to show us how his calendar of redemption is going to work as well. And his calendar of redemption of his working with mankind is going to be a seven-day calendar. God is going to work for six days, and then he's going to rest on the seventh day. What we need to walk away from that this morning is this. We're at the end of the sixth day. The question that everybody wants the answer to is, when will Christ return? Um, He's going to return at the end of the sixth day. And then he's going to rest. 2 Peter chapter 3, look again at verse 8. You must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord, he says, the seventh day, the last day, the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Now, in verse 10, Peter talks about two things in regard to the day of the Lord. He, he talks about what's going to be to, to usher in the beginning of the day of the Lord and also what's going to bring the day of the Lord to the end. And the event that begins the day of the Lord is the rapture. See, to, to begin the seventh day means you have to end the sixth day. And, and the event that ushers it in will happen in the same way that a thief comes during the night. That's what we just read here. Um, in, in 1 Thessalonians, we, we were in chapter 4. <clears throat> it was talking about the rapture. But if we continue on to, to chapter 5, he says this, Now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write to you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. There's that term again. So the day of the Lord's going to come like a thief. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin and there will be no escape. But you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. He says that it's going to come like a thief, and he also says it's going to happen like labor pains coming on a woman. Now, you know, we live in the day now where you can make an appointment to have your baby, right? But when this was written, that's not how it happened. It happened when it happened. But here's the thing. Labor pains w- would come on a woman, and at that moment she would be like, oh, it's here. But she wasn't like, oh, I'm pregnant. You see what I'm saying? She, she wasn't surprised that this day was coming, she knew, and she actually knew, it's it's pretty close. You you ladies that have, that have carried a, a baby full term, you know that it's, I can't, I can't possibly go on much longer. And he goes on to say, we're not in the dark about Christ's return. And we're not in the, the dark about the rapture of the church. Although it's going to come like a thief, we shouldn't be caught by surprise.
because we aren't in the dark about these things because God has given us keys to unlock the mystery of the timing by the phrases, the day of the Lord in the last days and understanding that a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So the event that begins the day of the Lord is the rapture. The event that ends the day of the Lord is the destruction of the earth. Back in Second Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> we'll wrap up with this. We, we, we read verse 10. We'll pick up there again. The day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. In that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. He has promised a world filled with God's righteousness. Everything between these two events, the rapture of the church and then the destruction of the earth and then a new earth created, everything in that is known as the day of the Lord or the thousand-year reign of Christ. And here's the simple truth that we need to take from today's message. Again, I know I flooded you with some information, and I hope that you will take these notes home and go and you study this and, 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 and absorb this. But here's the, the main thing that I want you to take home today. God has a seven-day plan for mankind. But Jesus is coming back. The rapture of the church is going to happen at the end of the sixth day. And when we look at God's calendar, we find ourselves right now at this moment in history at the very end of the sixth day. We don't know exactly when he's coming. But I can tell you, he's coming sooner rather than later. The big question that is often on people's minds, Christians' minds, is when is Christ coming back? Can I tell you that that's really not the right question that we should be asking today? The question that we should be asking today is this. Here's the big question. Are you, are you ready to meet Jesus? That's the big question. What do I mean by that? Are you saying, Paul, am I saved? Well, yeah, that's part of it. Um, you see, the entire plan of redemption is to draw mankind, for God to draw mankind to himself through Jesus. And if you have never committed your life to Jesus, when the rapture of the church comes, you will be left behind and you will go through the, the, the atrocities of the seven-year tribulation where, where the Holy Spirit has stepped away and Satan has full control. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, if that happens, then I'll accept Jesus then. No, you won't. Um, because the Bible says that if you have heard the gospel, which if you're here, you have. If you've heard the gospel, Satan will send such a strong delusion that you will believe it and you will not follow Jesus. If you don't accept Jesus Christ before either you die or Christ comes back, you will spend eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. The question today is, is, are you ready to meet Jesus if he comes today? But also for Christians, 
you've committed your life to Jesus, are you ready to meet Jesus if he comes today? Is your life, are you living your life in such a way that you're ready to stand in judgment, not of your sin, that's been judged at the cross, but of how you served the Lord and how you lived your life as a follower of Jesus? Are you ready to meet Jesus if he comes today? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? Are you ready to meet Jesus if he comes today? If you're here this morning, you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ. And and maybe just as we've looked at the fact that that, that God loves you and he's trying to draw you to himself, but you've chosen to, to, to turn away from him. But maybe the gravity of the situation and understanding where we are in God's calendar, maybe today is the day that you're saying, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not going to fight anymore. I know that God loves me. I've just chosen not to follow him. Would you, would you follow Jesus today? Would you commit your life to Jesus today? If there's someone here this morning and you're saying, I need to commit my life to Christ because I'm not ready if he came today, but I want to be. I want you to pray with me this morning. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. and My words aren't really important as much as to serve as a guide for you, but I want you to understand the Bible says you've got to confess that you're a sinner and that you need Jesus. And I want to, I want to lead you through something like that. So if you need to commit your life to Christ today, you pray with me. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I need Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for my sin. And I believe he rose from the grave. And I want to commit my life to follow Jesus. Until Christ returns or until I die. So forgive me of all my sin and make me new today. I choose to be a follower of Jesus. If you meant business this morning and you really acknowledged that your need for Jesus and you prayed and you asked him to to come take over your life the Bible says you can know you have eternal life that's why where we read this morning it said that that we're to comfort one another with the words about Christ's return because it's comforting to know that when he returns we'll be in his presence for eternity and you can have that comfort and that peace but now Christians are you ready to meet Jesus if he came today are you living your life in such a way that you're willing to stand and display it before Jesus and offer it to him as a living sacrifice look I know that we're not perfect we all sin and that's not what I'm asking but is the desire of your heart to honor God and put him first in everything that you do Christians, that's what we're, how we're called to live.
to live our lives as living sacrifices. Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone here this morning. Lord, I pray that if there are any who came this morning not knowing Christ as their Savior, that they will not leave today not having chosen to follow Him and allow Him to be their Savior. I pray for your church. God, there's a lot of sin that we're carrying that needs to be repented of. There's some sinful lifestyles and sinful life choices that those followers of yours have allowed themselves to get off into and are not living lives pleasing to you. God, we must repent of our sins and live lives pleasing to you. And I pray that every Christian here understanding that we are living at the end of the sixth day and that your coming is soon. God, help us to live lives that are pleasing to you. And I ask this in Jesus' name.